Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame. And you got the, and there's a. Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another quarantine edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. I had to get back on the podcast soon before Eric and Carter permanently replaced me with Will Shipley. Um, But fortunately, we have plenty to talk about this week with the NFL pushing forward through the coronavirus pandemic with its 2020 draft. To help us preview the draft, we invited on The Athletic's Dane Brugler. If you don't know Dane's work as a draft analyst, let's change that because he has done a lot of work ahead of the, the draft he does every year. This month alone, Dane has published a top 300 draft board seven-round mock draft and an NFL draft guide that includes 420 in-depth reports on players and over 1,000 ranked prospects. Dane, thanks for joining us. No, of course. I appreciate that uh, that introduction. It's uh, great to be on with you guys. Dane, I think we could start any number of places. I wanted to start with uh, Cole Komet. He was, when he declared for the NFL draft, I think some of us um, thought that he may be the top tight end drafted, and I think there's still certainly a possibility um, and some thought that maybe he could even end up being a first-round pick. I saw um, you've kept Dayton's Adam Troutman just slightly ahead of him in your, in your personal rankings. What are the concerns with Komet that sort of explain that small difference between Troutman and Komet? Yeah, and I think there's a lot to like about Komet, uh, uh, especially when you consider he's been a multi-sport athlete basically his entire life, uh, and mm-hmm. that includes, uh, you know, at, with the Irish, obviously, with – being a baseball player. And so the fact that he's going to be football only now moving forward is going to be a chance for him to really uh, develop even more. And I'm excited what that's going to look like. Um, you know, I think with Komet, uh, the, it bothered me a little bit how his, his testing at the combine, the three cone was historically low um, straight line. was really good four seven zero in the 40 yard dash at 262 pounds. That, that's fantastic. But a 7-4-4 in the three-cone uh, really uh, was surprising. I, I didn't think he would put up that type of number. Um, and you see that a little bit in his route running. Um, it's something where he needs to get better. Uh, as, a, as a blocker, same type of deal where he's able to uh, deliver that pop, but still needs to get better in terms of sustaining, in terms of driving. 
there, there's a lot to like about Cole Komet and what he's going to grow into. But I think right now where he is, um, I, there's a chance he could go into the first round. Uh, there's always a chance. All it takes is one team. Uh, but I think probably more towards the back half of the top 50 uh, early second round, I, pr- I think is probably where he's going to end up for me personally. Uh, you know, I I've got Adam Troutman ahead of him just because I, I see a little bit more fluidity in his routes. Uh, you know, a little bit better player, I think more consistent player, I should say at the catch point. Um, and I, I just, this tight end class as a whole, it's hard to get excited about, but I think Troutman and commit, they're pretty closely ranked for me at the top as the top two guys. Dane, the the two guys that I I think are are difficult to evaluate beyond their film is just Julian O'Quarra and Colin Crane just because of their injuries that they suffered. You know, Colin ended up playing with his injury through the end of the season and then had surgery in January. Um, You know, Julian's season ended in early November with a broken fibula. What do you make of their kind of makeshift pro days? Is there any legitimacy to that? And did that help them at all? You know, I I think it didn't hurt. um, But, you know, teams want to see, I don't think they're really interested in, you know, the 40 yard dash and things. They're going to trust their own stopwatches. And unfortunately, we don't have those times uh, for those two players. And it's a shame because I think Julian Aquara would have really lit up the combine uh, with his athletic traits. 64250 uh but it's good to see them just their you know their movements uh in space see them move around see how they're doing uh, so that's important for teams to see uh but with both these players i mean i agree it is tough to best understand where they are injury wise and they're doing medical rechecks a little bit differently this year obviously in most years these guys would fly uh back to indianapolis at some point in this, this month in april for just to get an update on the rehab and what's going on but with the the quarantine, they're wherever these guys are hold, held up uh, with their quarantine. The nearest NFL trainer, that's who's able to perform the rechecks, and then that trainer uh, he takes information from uh, other teams uh, in terms of you know what you want specifically uh, for uh, him to look at, and then he uploads all that information on the combine website, so every team has access to it. So. Uh, you know, that's it's, it's uh, a process that's a little different and it's something that won't be, you know, for each team, they're going to view it differently. Uh, not having their own doctors being able to perform the rechecks, that could be an issue. Um, and for some teams, they'll be OK with that, depending on how the initial uh, prognosis was, uh, especially with uh, at the combine. So a lot of differing opinions there on the injury process and how that's going to play out. I think just as players, uh, Kareem, to me, is the better football player right now. Uh, you know, he's better versus the run. He can reduce inside, give you a little bit of push uh, there as well. Uh, but I think there's no question Aquara has uh, the better upside. I think the biggest question with Aquara is just can he be a consistent early down player? Can he be a guy that you trust holding up the edges, uh, being an edge setter, closing down uh, the edge? And, and that's something that I, he did it intermittently, intermittently at, at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, when he can just pin his ears back and go, he, he's got juice. There's no question about it. He can cre- uh, convert that speed to power and uh, get uh, blockers on their heels, uh, push them into the pocket. But uh, when he that first move is kind of taken away and he doesn't have that speed, that's where things kind of fall apart. And so Aquara is he's not a finished product by any means. Uh, you know, he still needs to develop. But 
especially at the pass rush position, teams are going to take chances on athleticism. So that's why I still think Aquara has a shot to get into the top 50 picks uh, because there's going to be a team that looks at that athleticism and thinks of him very highly. Uh, I think when you look at uh, Kareem, he's not going to be that uh, big-time sack guy, but because he is so solid, he, I think he's a high-floor type of player. Uh, doesn't have a huge ceiling, but I think you have a very good understanding of what he is, what he can do, and you know he can be a strong rotational piece uh, on your defensive line. And so there's value in that somewhere in the, the third round, early fourth round. Dane, I think if you would have asked me last year, I would have probably pointed to Julian Aquara as the guy that could maybe go in the first round of this year's draft. Um, but he didn't necessarily seem to live up to those expectations early on in the season and certainly had his season ended um, by an injury and hasn't been able to pre-impress people with, with the combine stuff. What uh, Were you disappointed in what you saw from Julian at the start of the season? How would you kind of rate the way he came out uh, at, at the start of last season? Yeah, I, I was hoping to see because I did really, I was really intrigued. But what, when I studied him over the summer, I was looking. Okay, this guy ha- is a big time athlete. Um, he's going to blow up the combine. Uh, you see that explosiveness up the field, but I, I still, you, it seems like he's relying more on his athletic gifts, and he hasn't developed, you know, necessarily the, the know how. Um, you know, he's just his game lacks savvy uh, right now and understanding of how to use his hands. Um, I wish he were a little bit tougher versus the run. So I didn't see a a huge jump from his junior tape to his senior tape. I, I saw I felt like I was watching kind of the same player. And so, I, you know, I, I'm not for a guy with his type of athletic upside. I just I want to see better development from year to year uh, in terms of growing on the field, uh, understanding how to patch together a pass rush plan, uh, winning in different ways, developing as counter uh, measures. Uh, things like that, things that you'd see here and there, but just not consistently. Um, and so I, I don't see an instinctive player with Julian Aquara, and I wish I saw a tougher player with Aquara, which, uh, you know, bothered me a little bit. And that's something that uh, it, it, I think is one of the reasons why some teams view him more as a third or fourth round pick. Um, but like I said, I do think that a team looking to bank on the athletic upside I, I think that they'd be okay maybe taking a, a gamble on him uh, somewhere in the top 50 picks. Dane, with, with Chase, it seems like there's people that absolutely love him, and then they also feel like, well, this is a historically deep wide receiver draft. How high can he go? Uh, I, I'm just wondering, I mean, is when you shop for Chase, are you looking down a different aisle, and is that going to help him? Yeah, it, it's something where I mean, you the way you set it up with just talking about the the depth of this receiver class. That's something that's going to hurt all of these receivers uh, and push them down a little bit. But I think that that's where Chase Claypool could really help himself because he's a guy who has special teams experience. Uh, you know, had 25 career tackles over his time in South Bend. Most of those coming on special teams. Um, and so, you know, he's a guy that can come in and, you know, he might, he's probably not going to be top two on your wide receiver depth chart, but he can start off at number four, help you out on special teams and then work his way up through the depth chart as, you know, throughout his rookie year and then into year two, because he's still a guy who's, uh, he doesn't have the seasoning as a route runner that you necessarily want right now. Uh, he's very upright uh, with his releases. Uh, needs to better uh, kind of hide his route path and and sell DBs uh, on what he's doing out there. But the you just don't see many 6'4", 240-pound athletes with 
four four speed just walking around uh so he's a big time talent who uh if, if the if the league lets him get into the third round i think a team's going to get tremendous value at that point Dane, the Detroit Pride Jr. is another guy who has certainly speed as a strength in his game. With the cornerbacks in in the in the modern NFL, what 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 are his weaknesses, and and are there is there a greater need for cornerbacks, and so does that uh, kind of boost up sort of any cornerback that has those intangibles like like uh, Troy does? Yeah, and I think that that will help uh, more than anything. It's speed. Uh, corner is a stopwatch position in the NFL, and for him, you know, just under a shade under six foot, uh, you know, he's got average size, uh, but four four zero on the forty yard dash at the combine, uh, and he tested well and across the board. Three cone was up under seven seconds, thirty five and a half inch vert. Uh, you're looking for athletes uh, on the outside because that's what's that, that's who are playing receiver in the NFL, big time athletes. Uh, so you need guys that be able to cover that. And, you know, with pride, I, I don't think he has a great feel for, you know, body positioning down the field. I, I wish his eye discipline was a little bit better. Uh, his play strength is average at best. I mean, a lot of times he's, he's struggling to get off blocks or as a tackler, he seems to be, to be very choosy, but, at the end of the day, he is a terrific athlete who can run up and down the field. He's got that natural twitch to him. Uh, even when he makes a false step, he can recover because he has that quickness uh, to either break on plays or recover and get vertical. So uh, there's there's some things you worry about with him. He, he's not a polished player uh, by any means, but he's got the intangibles going for him. Uh, he's uh, basically he was a, kind of a three-year starter for Notre Dame, so he's he has he's battle-tested. Um, just wish I think the way I summed it up was uh, there's a little too much feast or famine there because he will make some mistakes, but he's a big time athlete and NFL teams. They are more than willing to bet on athleticism at the cornerback position. So I do think, uh, you know, he could be the, the third uh, uh, Notre Dame player uh, drafted uh, maybe behind Aquara uh, or Komet or I, mean, I think he's he's. He's fighting with Claypool to be somewhere in that early third round range. Uh, but, you know, like I said, teams will value athleticism at the cornerback position. So he might go a little bit higher than I think some people think. Dane, within Notre Dame's fan base, I think they were surprised at the 40 times of both Miles Boykin last year and Chase Claypool this year just because they thought, well, wait a second, how come he didn't have like 80 or 100 catches? And then they kind of wonder, is this a function of maybe Ian Book? And, and, and so I guess my two-part question is, did was there something in Notre Dame's scheme or in their quarterback play that, that didn't let those guys maybe shine as much as they could have? And, and the second end of that is, long-term, what do you think of Ian Book as a possible pro prospect? And I haven't done a deep dive on, on Ian Book yet, but obviously watching Claypool and Komet and some of these guys, uh, you know, get a feel for kind of what he is. And there are times where he's running around out there and you, you see a Tony Romo, uh, you know, because he's improvising, he's using his legs. Uh, he's making things happen, but um, you know there's there's some undisciplined undisciplined play there, and it, sometimes that leads to negative plays. And it's it's 
uh, you'd like to see more positive than negative. So he thinks, I, I, I think he needs to eliminate some of those poor decisions, reel it back in a little bit, um, and just be more consistent uh, as a senior. Because obviously he's not a big guy, um, and he doesn't have the biggest arm. And so there's things working against him. I don't think he's going to be a uh, you know top three round draft pick, uh, but he might end up being what uh, you know a lot of people thought Shea Patterson would be for Michigan. Uh, just you know a, a talented guy who can come in and compete, and he's going to fight for an NFL roster spot and be drafted somewhere on day three. I think that's that's kind of how uh, you know evaluators view Ian Book right now. Um, but I, and I do think that there were times where uh, maybe he held back uh, the offense because of uh, you know whether it's because of uh, you know his arm being average and not exceptional and you know he, he didn't push the ball downfield a ton um, and but I think part of it too is you know Chase Claypool yeah he ran a four four two but he doesn't necessarily understand the, how to shift gears and how to maximize that speed within the context of each route. And so I think it's a little bit of both Claypool, not being that polished route runner and understanding how to use that pure speed. And then part of it's on Ian book, uh, you know, not being able to push the ball downfield on a consistent basis. So uh, it's going to be interesting moving, you know, watching book next year as a senior to see uh, just how, you know, what developments he's made as mature as a passer. Uh, but he's obviously going to be without a few of his key playmakers, the top rusher, no commit, no play pool. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how he does next year as a senior. Dave, I'm, I'm curious, when you're evaluating safeties who are teammates like Jalen Elliott and Alohi Gilmar, who played together for a long time, is it difficult to separate um, how they kind of complement each other and what one does to help the other and, and vice versa? Or is that um, something that you don't find too much of an issue with? Yeah, I mean, I think they're each asked to do different things. Um, and, you know, with Gilman, he, he played that strong safety role. And I thought he was at his best where he could just work downhill. Um, and that is something the the read react skills. I mean, we saw against uh, Clemson when he was asked to turn it, his back to the football and run. That, that's where he struggled a little bit. And that's where receivers were able to get over top him. And as the last line of defense. Uh, you know, that that's kind of where you worried about Gilman, but his read and act skills, he, he would go, he would anticipate, he'd read and he wouldn't think about it. He just attacked. And so I think those downhills, uh, that, that that's what you really like from him, but he's only 200 pounds. And so he's undersized and he's almost like a, uh, he, he has a free safety body, but he plays more like a strong safety with uh, the way he plays downhill. So Gilman's tough. Um, and then Elliot's tough as well, because I think he was one of the better safeties uh, during senior bowl week. I really liked what I saw from him. He was one of the few guys I could shut down Adam Troutman uh, from Dayton, but watching him on tape, you just didn't see the same type of consistency from him. Uh, you know, he's not a fast player. Uh, I thought he was faster than the four eight Oh that he put up at the combine. Uh, but still, I mean, just not a not a fast player. And that's what you worry about in terms of holding up in coverage and having the range necessary. But uh, I think the intangibles are there. I think he's a guy he's played a lot of football, three year starter. He was productive. Uh, but it just man coverage. If you're going to survive in the NFL as a safety, you have to be able to survive. Uh, in man coverage. And that's where I thought uh, he did a nice job at the senior bowl, just didn't see that same type of consistency uh, on film. And I think that might be where uh, Elliot really struggles to uh, get one of those final roster spots. Dane, you're the 
depth of your draft guide is astounding to me. And, and I guess as you're watching film, I kind of wonder if you ever kind of get the big picture of the team and why I'm asking that is when you kind of look at the seven Notre Dame players or six or seven that are likely to get drafted, do you get a sense of how Notre Dame's overall talent stacks up with the Alabama's, LSU's, Clemson, Ohio State's of the world, and including non-draftable, non-draft eligible players? Right, and you know they definitely have talent that are that's going to be back in South Bend next year. I'm looking forward to seeing how Eichenberg, uh, how he develops. Um, you know, there's a few of those guys on the defensive line really caught my eye. Uh, last year, uh, kind of, you know, made sure I jotted down their names for, uh, you know, future, uh, so I can, you know, make sure and watch them. So there's definitely talent still, still left there. And, you know, Notre Dame, the brand recruits like crazy. So they're always going to get those athletes and, and high level players now to put them on the same level as Ohio state and Clemson and Alabama. And, you know, whether you throw Georgia in that mix, I mean, LSU was obviously there this past year. But they're going to it's inevitable. They're going to take a step back this year. Uh, and so where to put Notre Dame in that mix? It's it's tough. I would say they're probably in that second tier. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that they're on the same page as uh, or the same talent level as an Ohio State or some of those other uh, programs. But I don't think they're necessarily too far off either. Um, you know, they're still a, a quality uh, program that's going to win more games than not. And they're going to be able to uh, go to uh, USC and the Michigan and compete and have a chance to win double digit games uh, every single year. So, um, you know, I, I think that where the state of the program is right now, uh, they're in a decent, decent, and it, you know, so many of these things, they're driven by the quarterback. I mean, it, whether it's fair or not, that's just kind of how it is. And so that puts a lot on a guy like Ian Book. And so, kind of bringing it back to him. Very interested to see how he develops next year and see if he's able to uh, be more than, uh, you know, be more of a playmaker than just a, a game manager. And that's something that maybe that's just not who he is. Uh, but we're going to be able to see uh, next year to see what kind of steps he takes as a senior. And the last one from me here is a follow-up on that. Again, you're you're not diagnosing Notre Dame's problems or, or strengths when you're looking at individual players, but when you looked at Notre Dame's running game, you know, I, I, I thought your evaluation of Tony Jones was interesting in that I, I think a lot of us sometimes kind of blame the offensive line or wondered about the offensive line. And I, I wonder when you looked at the running game, what you were seeing between the running backs and the offensive line in terms of maybe not being as consistently successful, especially in short yardage. A hundred percent. I agree. And, you know, with because the offensive line that just watching Ian book, part of the reasons why he had his struggles were the offensive line. And that translated as a run game as well. There's no way around it. Um, and so for Tony Jones, uh, you know, he he had solid production. I mean, he averaged, I think, six yards per carry, uh, but he wasn't a high volume production guy. And part of that, I think, had to do with the offensive line. It's just I, I wish Tony Jones had better vision in terms of uh, setting up blocks and hitting the hole at the right time, because a lot of times, especially with the way the offensive line played last year for the Irish, 
it's not always going to be perfectly timed in terms of the block, in terms of being able to turn the defender from the hole. Uh, you have to be able to, as a running back, the best running backs are able to adapt on the move and understand where the escape plan is and understand, you know, when the play breaks down, uh, you know, be, be able to have some patience or uh, be able to find that outlet, whatever it is. And I just didn't think Tony Jones was able to do that a ton. Now, if the offensive line played better and they some of those holes were more consistent, then maybe Tony Jones was able to have more highlight real plays um, and things like that. So, uh, but it, it's something where the offensive line, it's you're you're only as strong as your weakest link, and that's something where there's definitely talent there. Uh, I mentioned Eichenberg as a guy that uh, I'm excited to see next year to see how he develops. I really, I really liked him his sophomore year, and then this year was kind of up and down. So eager to see what we see as a senior, but talent's not the question on on that offensive line. It's just a matter of consistency, and hopefully we see more of that uh, next year. Dane, we've we've run through the seven guys uh, that are in your top 300 from Notre Dame. There are another handful of guys hoping to either be late draft picks or undrafted free agents. Is there any guys from that group that you think have the best chance of finding success in the NFL? I'll, I'll kind of run through Chris Fink, Jameer Jones, Tony Jones Jr., Asmar Bilal, or Dante Vaughn. Is there any one of those guys that really intrigues you of having some interesting NFL potential? It'd probably be Fink. Um, you know, he's going to be very scheme specific. He's that inside slot option. Um, but, you know, he, I, I really love uh, receivers who always make themselves available. And I think that's what he does. Not the fastest guy. He's undersized. Uh, you know, there's just plenty of things working against him. Um, I, I think he had one of the lowest uh, bench press numbers at the combine, I think like seven. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things working against him. He's not physically impressive. But he has that quickness where he can uncover, he can go get the football. Uh, you know, he's a very detailed player. And those guys that have, you know, pay attention to the details that are able to develop that chemistry with quarterbacks. If you go to the right situation, you know, kind of like like a Hunter Renfro type, you know, he goes to the Raiders, the perfect fit. And he's able to have uh, some production as a rookie. Uh, it, it, it's going to take the right uh, fit for, for, uh, for a player like that. And I, I think he can he can get there. And honestly, for for him, it might be better to be a priority free agent where he has five or six or more teams calling him and he can really look at the options and say, OK, who could really use that inside receiver uh, that and, and, and with, with a solid quarterback that I can develop that chemistry and he can pick and choose where he goes. So would it shock me at all if you told me, uh, you know, you got out of your time machine and said and in, in, you know, six months or whenever we were able to play football again that Chris Fink made the final roster of an NFL team, that, that wouldn't shock me because I think in the right fit, uh, it, it could possibly work out for him. All right, Dane, well, that's all we have for you. We appreciate you taking time to share your insight. I'm sure um, a, re a relief probably comes every year when the draft comes, but then you're already asked to start covering the guys for the next draft. So uh, hopefully you get to uh, enjoy some downtime soon and because uh, I know you've put a lot of work into this. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates, and it is finally back. This week's NFL draft gives us a chance to make some profits finally again. Um, so let's start, uh, Eric, with our first one. Who do you think will be Notre Dame's first player selected? Well, I looked at Dame's projections, and he has Chase going first in his mop, but he has Cole Komet as the highest-rated player. 
and I'm I'm of agreement. I think those two, it's going to be between those two. So, you know, is is somebody going to fall in love with Chase and pump him up into the high second or late first round? And is somebody going to do that with Komet? I'm going to guess Komet just because I think he has less competition. You know that that there's it's easier to fall in love with. Um, Cole, I think Chase is actually going to be the better pro, but I think it's easier to fall in love with Cole just because this is not a strong tight end group, and it's an incredibly strong wide receiver group. Yeah, I, I agree that it's, in my mind, it's sort of a coin toss between those two. I think it's, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely going to depend on how the draft kind of comes together. If there's a really big run on receivers, someone might feel compelled to jump in there and make sure they get Chase Claypool because they're worried that um, he might not fall um, as far as maybe th- teams think he could uh, going into this draft. And um, it could be go the opposite with tight ends where no one seems to want to budge and take a tight end and everyone's more uh, compelled by taking wide receivers. So um, I'm going to go with Chase Claypool. Um, I think, um, like you said, I, I agree that I think he'll probably be a better pro than Cole, um, but I do think there is a very good chance that Cole goes ahead of him just based on uh, the competition. But I, I'll roll the dice and go with Chase Claypool um, because I think he just offers so much. And even though there are so many other wide receivers, I don't know that there are a ton of receivers that offer the same sort of skill set that he does. Um, so I think that there's a chance that someone could really fall in love with Claypool and take him maybe early in the second round possibly. Next one I have for us is over under four and a half Notre Dame players selected in the first three rounds. Well, I wanted to go to exactly to four and a half, but since that's <laughs> it really comes down to me where you think Khaled Kareem is going to go. I think the other guys are safely in the first three rounds, and then is Khaled Kareem a third or a fourth round draft pick? Mm-hmm. And so I think his high floor and the story of him playing injured for his team, I think it's going to be enough to break some ties with other defensive ends and push him into the third round. So I'm going to go with the over and say five. I'm going to go with under. Um, I agree that I think there's definitely probably going to be four. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if Kareem is that guy that's on the edge or, to me, I'm I'm the most curious about Troy Pride. I think um, there's room to poke holes in his game, um, and certainly cornerbacks are a big need, like Dane talked about, and his speed. Um, even at four four, which he was disappointed with, uh, is still very good at cornerback. Um, I'm curious to see where he lands. Um, I think Kareem and even Aquara, I think, could potentially drop out of the first three rounds, depending on how things pan out. So. I'm going to be conservative in this um, and go with the under. I think it'll probably be four. Um, certainly won't be surprised if it's five. I, I think that um, is a pretty likely outcome as well, but um, I'll go with, with under for, with guessing there will be four selected in the first three rounds. Next one we have is who will be drafted earlier, Julian Aquara or Khaled Kareem? Well, they're, they're interesting players because they're, they're so different. And, um, but I think that Julian's ceiling is higher and his skill set is more coveted than what Khaled does. 
And so I'm going to go with Aquara. He's, you know, when you look at the multi-round mock drafts, and I was looking at pro football focuses today, and they they had Julian going in the first round. Um, so he's all over the place, but I think somebody's going to fall in love with what they think he can turn into. So I put Aquara ahead of of Collin. Yeah, I went with Aquara as well. I I just think his potential is going to be too tantalizing for teams, and they're going to see. Um, maybe what Julian Acquire can become um, as opposed to what Julian Acquire was um, and, and be more um, be more coveting of that than um, Khaled Kareem. I think Khaled Kareem very well has a decent chance of being a better pro player than Julian Acquire. Yeah. Um, I think he, he maybe he's maybe the safer pick. Um, but he's not as flashy of a player, but I think um, – well, imagine, imagine. Say, say he's not as quick as you think, and he struggles as a defensive end. I bet he could easily turn into a defensive tackle and have a long career there as well. Um, Julian Acquire seems more hit or miss, but I do think that um, more teams will be willing to take a risk on his sort of athleticism. Um, so that's why I, I will, I will lean towards Acquire on, on this one. Next one, uh, I didn't put a half on this, so you'll be pleased. But it makes it this more difficult. Over under six Notre Dame players drafted. Well, I think it comes down to Jalen Elliott getting drafted or not. And and when you look at his ranking, you know, he's in the 200 somewhere, usually closer to 250 than to 200. And um, so that kind of puts him on the brink since there's 255 players drafted. The 4840 is, is interesting to me from an NFL combine standpoint. Because when I spoke with Jalen, he said that a lot of teams realized that that wasn't a real number, that he had um, uh, he had some tightness in his legs when he tried to kind of pull through that. You know, and I, again, I, I don't think, I think that Dane, what Dane said about the makeshift pro days was kind of, it didn't hurt people, didn't necessarily help them. But Jalen ran a lot faster at his pro day where you could, you know, you could put the stopwatch on it as long as they weren't messing with the video and making it go faster than <laughs> the video. Yeah. Um, you could certainly get a sense that he was faster. And really, when you watch his film, there's no way he was a 4840 guy, especially playing some nickel. I mean, that just seems impossible to me that he would have been able to be on the field at a 48. So I, I think enough people are going to believe that some of the combine stuff was not his peak performance, um, and and he will get drafted. So my long answer is yes, over seven. Uh, yeah, well, so you only have to be six, but you think it'll be seven. I I, I went with over as well. Um, I also maybe this is a question I should have asked Dane. I, I'm I'm curious if some of these scouts and pro personnel will be more conservative and maybe lean towards some of these guys that are from proven schools and can see some of their uh, stuff on film and trust what they see on the film. Whereas maybe some of the guys that play against weaker competition or at lower levels of football, um, maybe they weren't able to go see those guys in person and do those kinds of evaluations that that would normally happen in these, these recent months because of the coronavirus limitations. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that plans out. So maybe even guys like a Chris Fink, maybe he squeezes in there. Um, and, and gets drafted and, and maybe bumps that number up to eight uh, Notre Dame players drafted or, or Nazmar Bilal. Um, so I, I think that there's a potential for that maybe. And so 
um, for that reason. And, and that obviously, I think there's, there's a lot of talent in this in this draft class from Notre Dame. Um, I will go over six Notre Dame players drafted. The last one I have for us is who will be Notre Dame's top draft pick in 2021? Well, Kyle Hamilton is not draft eligible. I would say <laughs> him. Um, you know, when I look at the guys, and, and again, I'm going to try to assume Obviously, this year is not going to be a normal college football season because we did not have spring football practice. And so I'm going to try to assume that it's going to be at least a semi-normal year, that you're going to have a semi-normal cycle and players are going to develop the way that we thought they were. And so you're kind of looking at the offensive linemen, Kramer, Liam Eikenberg, Robert Hainsey, Dalen Hayes, and Adio Gendeji on the defensive side, maybe as far as early entries, Jeremiah Wusukormoa and Aaron Banks. And I think those two guys could certainly be in the mix if they had great years and came out just because of their high ceilings. But I'm going to lean to the left tackle on the team, even though I think Robert Hainsey probably will have a higher game-to-game grade. Liam Meikenberg is just a bigger dude who can do more things in terms of protection on that left side. Left tackles have been really good going from Notre Dame into the NFL. So for me, it's Liam Eikenberg. Man, we started out with all these disagreements and now we're all now we're agreeing on all these, these final ones. I, I'm in the same boat. I, I, Liam Eikenberg seems to be the pick for, uh, at least at this point um, for the next year. Um, it just makes the most sense to me that um, I think he will continue to improve. I think he he's certainly uh, maligned for his false start issues, but I think beyond that, he is a better player than he gets credit for at times. Although um, it is interesting to me that Dane has had maybe higher opinions on him going into last season than he did coming out of last season. Um, I don't know that I saw uh, Liam struggle a lot last year, but um, I, I'm curious to see how he continues to project and continues to improve. And I think he's a solid pass blocker. And I think he's, he gets after it as a run blocker as well. I, I think the dark horse, in my opinion, would be Jeremiah Usukormo if he does decide to to not come back, uh, just because his athleticism is is kind of out of this world. And the, I think that he's exactly the kind of linebacker that the NFL teams are looking for. Um, so I think he will, whenever he decides to go into the NFL draft, as long as he can continue to stay healthy um, and continue on the trajectory that he's that he showed last year. Um, that he's going to have a potential for a very successful NFL career as well. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric at E Hanson NDI. First one we have is from AV Bridges 06. And he asked us a recruiting question. Many ND recruits are making decisions during this dead period. In your opinion, which offensive or defensive recruits would truly wait to visit ND in June before making a decision? Well, you know, I think the difficulty in answering that question is, A, is it a reality there are going to be visits in June or even in the summer at all? And B, is it a reality there's going to be a high school football season? Um, so for and me, see, and see, and see is we can't talk to Carter this week. <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm going to kind of flip the question and say, here are the guys that I think are going to commit that don't need to take the visit. 
that they're yep. either going to commit to Notre Dame or they're going to commit somewhere else without having to come. Will Shipley has already said, he was on our podcast last week, and he said that if he is at Notre Dame in June, it will be as a Notre Dame commitment. So he's mm-hmm. either going to be here as a Notre Dame commitment or not at all in June um, for whatever the reasons are. But he's going to make his decision before that. Uh, Jason Anye, the defensive end from, I believe, Rhode Island, I think he doesn't need to see Notre Dame again either to make a decision. And then I know Rocco Spindler, the offensive guard from Michigan, has said he wants to take his visits. But I think, again, the longer this goes on, does that change his mind? If they say, hey, look, no visits at least until the fall, you know, is he going to want to wait that long? I think of the other guys, he's a possibility to commit to Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame leads with him uh, based on what Carter tells me, (laughs) not on my own knowledge. Um, So, those are the only three. I think everybody else needs to see Notre Dame or they need more information. I just don't think it's probable at this point anyone else is close enough to kind of make that kind of decision. Yeah, I think unless you have someone like Will Shipley who is seemingly down to two schools and just trying to figure out which way to go between those two schools, I don't think that many kids that are deciding right now are actually make are, are making new decisions. Like these are decisions they've already had in their mind. They just didn't know if they were ready to do it, and for whatever reason, have convinced themselves or the, the programs that are recruiting them have convinced them that now is the time to commit. I, I so I I think the biggest thing about this whole time with recruits is that a lot of these high school kids are going to get bored and they're going to get tired of all these all these coaches reaching out to them because those coaches have a lot more time on their hands. Um, so I think that is what will influence their decisions more than anything. I don't know, um, sure, like what Notre Dame is going to try and do in terms of doing virtual visits if they can and, and showing them any, anything that they can without actually bringing them on campus um, will be helpful. But I don't, I don't know that anyone's going to be swayed during this period of time that already doesn't, in the back of their mind, have their mind made up. And I think um, some of those guys that we think could end up coming to Notre Dame are, uh, before June would be guys that we think that if they had to choose today, Notre Dame would be their choice. Um, so I, I think that um, it, it's, it's impossible to predict because every kid's going to handle this situation differently. Um, but I, I really think that boredom factor is going to play a big role and whether kids are willing, willing to be patient and, and let this all play out. Um, because I, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of schools that be pushing for kids like, hey, we need your commitment now because uh, we might not have a spot for you in a week. I don't Ohio State seems to be unaffected more than anyone in terms of their recruiting. They seem to keep adding commits and um, are, are on pace to finish with the top class in the, uh, for 2021. But uh, I, I don't know that there's uh, going to be a ton of movement um, because I think both schools in terms of the coaches and, and kids are going to want to see how this all plays out before they sort of tie themselves to one thing. Because I think – Certainly you can commit, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. You can certainly back out of that if you want to, but I think it just makes it more complicated when you don't know what's going to happen, and, and um, I think you're just going to open yourself up for um, a tougher time if you don't just be more patient with this. So um, hopefully these kids are getting good advice. I don't know uh, um, that anyone can really tell them how to handle this because nothing like this has really happened before, but um, it's certainly an interesting time to be kind of monitoring how the, how the recruits are going through this process. Next question is from Case at Irish Case 05. 
Will the camps being shut down this summer affect recruiting more in 2021 than the shutdown in 2020? So he's asking about the 2022 recruiting cycle, basically. That's um, what I, yeah, that was my thought. 22, I guess, beyond even more than the 2021 Christ. And my answer to that would be yes. It seems like the yeah. kids that have come, that's kind of their first exposure to Notre Dame and to the coaching staff a lot of times are the first significant exposure. Um, you know, you do have those exceptions like Jay Brunel, who came to camp last year and impressed the coaching staff enough to get a scholarship and get in that class. But I think, again, more often than not, it's getting an earlier first impression on a recruit that you're going to that you're going to try to get into the following class. So definitely the 2022 cycle more uh, affected than this year's. Yeah, just some information to go behind that, I think. Uh, not I, that I was bad. No, no, no. Just some, some more names to put behind it. In the 2020 class, four of the kids went to camps, Drew Pine, Michael Mayer, Michael Carmody, and Jay Brunel. Um, and, and Brunel was the only one that camped uh, last year in 2019. The other guys had camped in previous years, so that kind of gives you an example of um, how those guys that are campers um, usually end up affecting classes beyond the ones that are going into their senior years. Now, if you go back to when it was first, when the Irish invasion was first popping in 2014, that there were more guys going into their senior class then because that was more how the, the recruiting cycle worked. It, 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 it advanced throughout the years and certainly with the early signing period uh, made it easier for kids to get further along in the process um, by the summer going into their senior year. Um, so I think um, that it will certainly impact the 2022 classes and beyond more than the 2021 class. But, um, it, it's going to be interesting because those guys that may have had a chance to get offered at a camp in the, at, at Notre Dame, like Jay Brunel did last summer, they're going to have to rely on their senior film and whatever seasons they get to play as, as seniors to kind of re-spark their recruitment. And I think the Notre Dame coaching staff and the recruiting office is going to have to do um, a good job of staying on those kids and figuring out where these late offers can come from because I don't know that there's going to be a ton of movement in terms of adding more offers. Certainly they have offered some guys in the last couple of weeks, um, but I don't know beyond what they've already done that there's going to be a lot of more, a lot of reasons to to offer more guys until there's more things to evaluate. And that um, it's certainly unclear when that's going to happen. Next question is from Josh Milton at Joshua Milton. Let's just assume Will Shipley commits. Do you and or Eric have a gut feeling on the starting running back in 2022 I know that's a really long ways off, but do you have a sense of a better prospect by chance? Maybe they share the load. Um, well, the first question was, do I have a good gut feeling? No. Um, but, <laughs> um, and, and certainly somebody like Kyron Williams could be in the mix there too, but Absolutely. I think these guys are so incredibly talented. I think it's going to be a I think you're always going to have some kind of running back rotation at Notre Dame. That's just kind of the nature of how football is now. Uh, I think Shipley and Tyree complement each other well. You could even see them on the field at the same time sometimes. You could throw Tyree into the slot, and I think he'd be really effective there. Uh, so my sense is that, you know, it's going to be a rotation, but if I need to pick starter between those two I would say probably Shipley is a guy that would have more carries in a game 
Uh, but, you know, Tyree's getting stronger, so we'll see. Yeah, I think I would side with Shipley, too, and the fact that I think if, if you're picking from the two, he seems to be more of a guy um, that was, it could handle a bigger load more. So I, certainly we're going to learn a lot more about those guys if, if Will Shipley comes to Notre Dame and Chris Tyree, uh, his career goes as planned that uh, we'll know a lot more about those guys by 2022 than we do now. But I see Will Shipley as maybe a more polished running back. Um, I think to me, I'm curious. So I am probably the better prospect. I, I to me, I, I have a hard time or I'm, I'm very curious of if Chris Tyree's 40 time wasn't what it is. It was maybe a 10th slower. Um, how, how much would that impact where he is as, as a recruit? I think Will Shipley is more, balanced as a football player and maybe a more natural running back than Chris Tyree is. I think Chris relies on his speed and I think he has a ways to go in terms of becoming more of a well-rounded running back. Now, certainly all that can change and um, between now and 2022, but I think just evaluating if I were, we say, okay, we have Will Shipley's junior season to go off of and Chris Tyree's junior season to go off of, I would opt with Will Shipley at this point as being the better prospect, though I don't know that there's a wide gap between them at all either. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. If there does end up being a system where only conference games are played for the upcoming season, would the ACC let Notre Dame play a conference schedule for one year only? Would they hold Indy hostage and make them join as a permanent football member? So that's uh, that's like a, a hypothetical within a hypothetical within a hypothetical. So I where do you want to start with that one, Eric? Well, I know that, um, you know, Jack Swarbrick has made himself pretty available to the media lately and Pete Sampson had a rotation with him yesterday and published a story today and was and Jack was asked about that question and he did not think that there was really any scenario where teams would play conference only schedules he thought they would lock pieces off the schedule or they push them back and rearrange them but that if if you ended up taking games off and playing an abbreviated schedule, you wouldn't just take the non-conference games off. It would be more of a calendar thing that you would maybe miss the first three games. And again, that's going to create some conference inequity because some teams are playing conference games in week one. So I don't think either of those scenarios are even uh, likely. I think they're, I, I certainly don't, I don't think they would hold Notre Dame hostage. And secondly, if they just decided, okay, let's play conference schedules only, you would still have Notre Dame being a game that people would fit onto their schedule. So I just don't see either of those things happening. Yeah, I think the ACC certainly would have the freedom to decide, like, how many, like, if they're shortening their schedule to, say, eight games, they could just make everyone have seven games and the teams that have Notre Dame on their schedule. Um, or they all have eight games and there's seven conference games and the teams that have Notre Dame on the schedule play their eighth game against Notre Dame and the other guys play against other teams. I it just, I, it seems very unlikely to me, but if we're buying into that concept that this would happen and the ACC somehow feels like it would give them leverage um, to force Notre Dame to play the conference, play to become a permanent member just so they could play ACC games this coming year. I don't think Notre Dame would would be a willing hostage. They would they would go play against independent schools or something. They they would I don't think that they would be they would allow themselves to be taken hostage over one football season. Their independence is far greater than what would happen in this 
season that's already if if this if this is already happening where the the for some reason conference games only are scheduled, this season is basically a sham. And <laughs> anyways, I don't know that like Notre Dame's history and people are going to be upset because in in 2020 they didn't they didn't uh, win the national championship because this whole thing was messed up because of conferences. I I just don't know that. In the big picture, that there would be any reason to to allow this to be uh, sway your your thinking on on wanting to remain an independent, unless somehow that the financial damage that is done from this can be um, it, the best answer to that is joining a conference like the ACC. I think that I think that would be, in my opinion, a separate decision. It wouldn't be because of this agreement that the ACC is trying to force upon them. It would be Notre Dame looking for some sort of way to um, have some stability after a. a, a um, whatever ends up happening and upending this 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 football season, right? And more, I mean, as of things, the way they project now is the 2021 is going to be a more normal year for everybody, especially by the time football season rolls around. And the talk now is expanding the playoff is going to come earlier than when the contract expires in a few years. And it may expand to as many as 16 teams. And again, it that's one less reason for Notre Dame to even think about joining a conference is this expanded playoff format. It gives Notre Dame more access as a team that typically plays 12 games instead of 13. Yeah, I would just suggest um, to, during this time of uncertainty, to not put three of the worst-case scenarios together to imagine the worst-of-all-time scenarios. So uh, I, I don't know that anything like this would... It would happen. Certainly, we don't really know what's going to happen, but this seems uh, pretty unlikely. Next question is from Joe at Joey Salvatore. Thoughts on ESPN's FPI having us go 9-3 with losses to Wisconsin, Clemson, and USC. Do you guys think 10 or 2 or better is more likely? Um, I, I still don't understand the FPI. I'm not sure <laughs> how, how they calculate that and so forth, but I did a story um, after the what would have been the blue gold game, so I wrote it Saturday night for for Sunday's paper and Saturday night's web, and it was how things have changed in terms of Notre Dame's bottom line. And I went position by position, and I feel like Notre Dame is actually going to come out of this in a better place than a lot of the other college football teams, just because of having a third year starting quarterback having a, a new offensive coordinator who's absolutely in sync with that quarterback, having five offensive line starters, not having a ton of position battles to have to deal with coming out of this. I think actually this hurts Wisconsin um, more than it hurts Notre Dame, this layoff. And I, I, I actually think that that becomes a more winnable game the longer that this kind of goes on through the summer, if, if Notre Dame has no, if they neither of them have any semblance of spring practice, which basically I don't think is possible at this point, um, and they just have conditioning and then training camp, I think that actually favors Notre Dame in an October, early October game. So I think 10 and 2 feels better now than it did going into spring. Yeah, I think ten or two or better is is more likely than nine and three. Um, I don't know. It's hard to get a, a, a sense for if we. I mean, I don't know. Nothing has happened for me to change my opinion of whether or not Notre Dame is going to be good or not this season. I think we just don't have any new information. Now, certainly, 
Um, we think that maybe certain parts of their team, given their uh, a veteran offensive line and defensive line and a, and a quarterback going into his third year, would would lend to them being able to handle the situation better. But, I mean, we're all just guessing when it comes to that. Um, my prediction would be that all these analytic mo- analytic models will be far less useful this season because there's so many other variables that there's no way they, they can account for in terms of how teams will be impacted by everything that's gone on in this offseason. Um, it, it's not it's, – you can't just go back – you can't just rely on returning starters or whatever stats that they use in terms of predicting – um, seasons as you normally would. I think there's just so much else thrown into the mix these off seasons for every team um, that I, I would imagine that these analytic analytic models will be um, less accurate than they they normally are. So it would be something that would be interesting to sort of track. Next question is from Dave Simono at dsimono66. When did the modern era of Notre Dame football start? Notre Dame defines it as post World War II, so 1946. I would say probably a more accurate marker would be 1964. That is the first year of two-platoon football, as we know it, where players weren't forced to go both ways. Um, And it was also when Arrow arrived, which kind of took Notre Dame out of the dark ages as well. So I, I kind of, you know, when I did the top tight end stories, that's where I started my timeline. I felt like before that, they weren't true tight ends, even though that might have been kind of their function, but they also played defense. This was, to me, where I could make an apples-to-apples comparison as much as you can in comparing, you know, different times. Yeah, I don't. to me, it's interesting. I mean, if, if we're using the 60s as modern, and we're talking about 60 years ago now, so the modern is getting, is getting longer and longer dragged out. So I wonder if there, it's better to have more different eras built in than to go pre-modern and, and modern. Um, so I, I, I think there's a definite, uh, in my mind, I think there's a sort of a change in the nineties when um, they changed to an 85 scholarship limit, the, the bowl coalition, the bowl Alliance, which leads to the BCS that sort of all ended up bringing us to the college football playoff system that we have now. Um, so I wonder if maybe you can put it at 1994 um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it depends what you're trying, to, how you're trying to define modern. Certainly, I think I agree with you in terms of what um, most people considered the the modern game in terms of the transition that was made. Um, in yeah, the 60s. I mean, a lot of it's in the context of how you're writing a story. I I definitely think a, a natural demarcation when you're writing a story is post Lou Holtz era. You know, mm-hmm. that was kind of a struggle in Notre Dame trying to get back on college football map. So I think that's a significant stopping point. A lot of times, too, I track trends that are BCS and playoff era. So that's 16 years of BCS and what, five or six of playoffs now. Um, And so, again, you kind of look, I look through those. What are, you know, how many teams have won national championships with first-year starters, for example, in that era? So that, those are, again, it's all what you're, what you're trying to write about. So modern era is just kind of a, a throwaway term. I think there's there's times of demarcation. And, and at some point, we're going to separate the BCS from the playoff era because, as we can see, the dominant teams are have been much more dominant in the just the short playoff era than they were during BCS. Right. And, yeah, and as the playoff, if it does expand, as we think it may, 
um, then it becomes less and less like anything that what the BCS looked like in terms of right. trying to just get the two team best two teams to play against each other, where you may end up having sixteen potentially playing against each other. That's a completely different way to sort of think about it. Uh, last question we have is from Jude at NDJRS. Um, Notre Dame has been streaming old NBC games every Saturday night. If you could pick one home game from 1991 onward worth rewatching, which would you choose? Please exclude games they've already shown or will show. Um, and so he said, I would go. Oh, no, that, that, that was uh, what I had written for my notes. So what, what would, uh, what are your, uh, what's, what's the game that you would want to rewatch? You know, honestly, um, <laughs> there's a couple of them on my list that are losses, and I'm, I don't think that would make Notre Dame's fans happy. The 1993 BC game is one of them, and the 2017 Georgia game. Just because I'd want to kind of rewatch that, watch Wimbush, watch the offensive line, watch Georgia's speed. So if I had to pick a win, I think I'd watch the Bush-Push game again, the 2005 game, and that's another loss. But, heck, that was one of the best (laughs) college football games I've ever seen. So I'm a party pooper. If I have to pick a win, I'm going to pick 1991 Indiana just because I was covering Indiana at the time, and that was a really fun game for me to see how the team I covered measured against Notre Dame. Yeah, I uh, it's definitely a different exercise for me because I've certainly seen less Notre Dame football games than you have, um, and so I don't necessarily have a, a, a big of a Rolodex of games that I would say, okay, I was at that game, I remember that, but I'd like to rewatch it to see how that would maybe refresh my memory or change my opinion of what I saw. Um, and I agree. I think those losses are interesting, and certainly we have different perspectives than fans do. I think um, the 93 BC game, especially after watching the 93 FSU game, I really would like to watch that. I've, I've never seen the 93 BC game. I had never seen the 93 FSU game in, in full before uh, rewatching it when Notre Dame uh, put it back on YouTube. Um, but if I'm sticking, and the 2005 USC game, I, I certainly watched that game. That was when I was in high school, so I, I certainly remember watching that. Um, and uh, I think it would be fascinating to watch, even though that they lost. Um, but if I had to pick a game that Notre Dame won and it would be a game that I would want to rewatch, I think I would want to pick something that was kind of weird and high scoring. So I went and picked the 1998 ND LSU game. Um, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> that was a, a weird that. high scoring game. Uh, so I think that would be interesting. The 2012 Stanford game is actually funny enough, a game that I wasn't at. I was uh, at a wedding that weekend, so I wasn't able to to uh, be at that game. And so that was certainly, I certainly ended up watching it. I recorded it and watched it, but I wasn't there for that. So that would be a good one, but that wasn't a high scoring game either. Um, so to me, if I'm just trying to figure out a way that I want to entertain myself, I want to, I want something that's sort of back and forth and high scoring. I think that LSU game was, was pretty crazy. So I would maybe highlight something like that. Certainly it's not a game that people remember as a, a big moment or a big win um, in Notre Dame history, but I think it would be an entertaining game to rewatch. All right, that's it for this episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. We hope to be back soon with another podcast to help keep you guys occupied. Uh, We will certainly have plenty of coverage of the NFL Draft this weekend. And stick with NDInsider.com for all your updates.